0: Previously on Storyological, (laughs) (laughs) we'll figure out what we're doing as we go. What?
1: Shit. Oh, no, I am recording. It's fine. I'm sorry. Um,
0: (laughs) Beware the orange man.
1: Because he does
0: not know what he does not know. (laughs) And you do not know what he knows about what he doesn't know. (laughs) It's good stuff.
1: Delicious and upsetting. Um, this is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories.
0: That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerood.
1: And I'm E.G. Kosh.
0: My pick for this week is The Venus Effect by Joseph Allen Hill. It was in Lightspeed at the end of 2016. Joseph Allen Hill, if you remember, Emma picked one of his stories in the premiere issue of Liminal. That story was called...
1: Uh, you can't see it till it's done.
0: And it was about pizza...
1: Mm-hmm. And existential angst and friendship.
0: Yeah, and I remember they, they were on the beach. Uh-huh. There was a bit where they That's were on the their beach and there was a in dinosaur.
1: In the stars. It's a good time.
0: This story is very similar to that story in that it's more than a little bit meta. The authorial persona is inside the story uh, with us. And what it is, it is a series of eight stories told over the course of 9,300 words that in some sense are the same story, which is the story of a writer trying to begin and finish a story about a boy named Apollo. And unfortunately, what happens to Apollo, as the author finds, is no matter what situation Apollo is in, whether it's a kind of realistic setting where he's in love with a girl who ultimately might be sleeping with someone else or he's fighting aliens in a galactic conflict or he's trying to win the big game in, a, in the, on the basketball courts of his dreams or he's underwater fighting submarines. No matter what happens, Apollo, who happens to be a young black man, when he comes near to the end of the story, sometimes not even the end of the story.
1: Sometimes he hardly gets to begin it. He
0: hardly gets to begin. Um... The man in the police uniform arrives and shoots him. And he is very dead mm. over and over again. And that very simply is what happens in the Venus effect. Uh, but there are there is a lot to talk about within its 9,000 some odd words.
1: Oh, God, where to start? There's just so much. <laughs> there's just so much incredible uh, meat on this story at, at pretty much every level of uh, that you can think of. Uh, so in, in terms of the thematics and what this story is about uh, a black man trapped, no matter what story he's in, no matter what he tries, no matter how reasonably he behaves uh, or...
0: Or spectacularly. Or spectacularly. Magically, heroically, no matter... Yeah, it.
1: exactly. That he is trapped in this cycle of death, that he has no option. And one of the things that i loved about this uh story is i had this kind of dawning feeling as i got into maybe the third or fourth story i was like oh okay this is just an endless cycle and i see what he's doing and he's building this sense of suffocation this sense of being trapped by by the structures and culture that he lives in and that there is no way out
0: yeah yeah for the apollo or the writer i i wrote down Maybe near around the, a little bit after the moment you're discussing, where you begin to realize this end cycle, and the word I wrote down was exhaustion, because mm-hmm. there's there's a feeling that you will probably feel as you read the story. There's a moment where it begins to feel exhausting and almost tedious to to read, because by the seventh story, when you begin, you know you, you know how know it's going to end. Die. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter, and of course that's that's part of the point, because yeah. it's the the feeling of exhaustion of of having your story continuously co-opted by by someone else's actions or some some system's actions and that among many ways is how joseph is able to to bend the structure of the story to his will as a storyteller to inflict to inflict the pain of the reality of the story on you the reader and what speaks to, to his skill is that however much the story is shaped by its conceit, by its thematics. However much you could imagine a version of the story where the characters matter less than what the story's message is, where their lives, the lives of the characters and their particularities get drowned in whatever the rush the rush of the conceits rage. Um, the story is funny and alive and mm-hmm. the, the, the characters live and breathe and love having the the scope of the big idea all the way down to the particular person gives its thematicalness and just the the pain of each ending more force
1: yeah absolutely absolutely and then and then just on a sentence to sentence level he made me laugh so many times and kind of made me gasp in delight at how he smashes together these different registers of in some places highbrow, ideological, philosophical challenges, like, put into the mouths of his characters. And then, right next to it, it'll just be like, yeah, it was so dope. And you just, and it's, uh, in fact, i got a quote here. So, at the end of one of the one of the stories, there's a moment where one of the characters is uh, trying to justify to themselves what, is, what has happened. And they say, it is in no way necessary for me to consider the ideological mechanisms by which a community and society determine who benefits from and who participates in civil society, thus freeing me from cognitive dissonance, stemming from the ethical compromises that maintain my lifestyle. Then we engage in a manly handshake. It was so dope. And I'm like, oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) There is a feeling in reading it that there is someone there with you, Mm -hmm. reading and making the story along with you. A feeling that gets reinforced in that section right before the final bit, where I'm going to say the author. The author says, Mm -hmm. I can't fight the man in the police uniform. He's real, and I'm an authorial construct. Just words on a page, pure pretend. But you know who isn't pretend? You. We have to save Apollo. We're both responsible for him. We created him together. Death of the author, you know? It's just you and me now. I've got one last trick. I didn't mention this in the interest of pace and narrative cohesion, but I lifted the Omega question off Lord clocks before he died. I don't have the answer, but I know the question. You've got to go in. I can keep the man in the police uniform at bay as long as I can, but you have to save Apollo. We're going full Morrison. Engage second person present. God yeah. forgive us.
1: Oh, words as weapons. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It is
0: definitely a, a call to action. It is words that that drive into your brain that that
1: um, maybe maybe more than words I meant story like narrative structure as a weapon you know when he says engage second person present tense i I laughed out loud because because of how ridiculous and wonderful and and literally powerful it is,
0: yeah, it is making like a lot of his his fiction that that we've read and this story in particular is making apparent the um, as, as, as is said in that section, the complicity and cooperation that is involved in creating a story's reality, both in this reality, outside here, readers, where we exist in the real world, but, but also on the page and how those things intermingle. And if you are exhausted by this story, the, there's something you can do. Yeah, um, imagine
1: what it's like to live this life. Yeah, yeah, and what is,
0: what I think we will probably talk about it again and again over the course of our podcast series. What's, but I feel like sometimes separates a story that veers towards something that is less satisfying to me, which can be a polemic, which can be, this is my message and I understand it so clearly, I will push it through your skull. Mm-hmm. Is that in that final section, when you are asked to engage the second person present, it is not to step into the body of the black kid again it is to step into the body of the cop and put yourself in the situation of maybe being afraid, maybe having been, in a sense, as is mentioned in that section, constructed mm-hmm. out of the context of the stories you live in to behave and believe a certain way and how are you going to answer the question differently?
1: Very wonderful. Um, he He's constructed the story like an argument, right? He posits his theme at the beginning, where his, his approach even at the beginning, where he's watching what seems to be his ex-girlfriend dance with somebody who has zero amount of funk. Like, he's just going through the motions, and what is the point in that? And it, like, it sets up the story, and, like, you may think this is ridiculous. It's got superheroes and authorial voice and a crazy kind of structure. But listen, I am not just going through the motions here. This is fucking necessary. I enjoyed that that right from the get-go, he's kind of putting out there what his intent is. And then he points out he shows us exactly what the problem is right young black men being killed needlessly by police and he does it in a way that doesn't just point the finger at that particular situation the one off incident he does it in a way that talks much more broadly about about culture and about collective responsibility but he also points out kind of why something that i found really powerful was a A moment where he seemed to get out why we don't do more about it. And he talks about uh, after they killed the bad guy in one of the stories, the story toward the end. And Apollo says, I don't know what to do here now. The the movies always end at this point. And it's like, yeah, we have learned our behavior and our expectations of how things work from movies and from simplified narrative structures. And, And culture is different to that. Culture is much more complex and contains much more responsibility for us as individuals. And then it ends with that kind of call to action. And I, I thought that it was a very elegantly constructed argument.
0: You know what it reminded me of? I do not. Oh, it reminded me of Duck and again. But more, I want to talk about meteors and privilege. Because what it reminded me of...
1: Maybe you mean my like meteors that come down from... Out of space.
0: Oh, is there another kind of meteor?
1: I couldn't tell if you were saying media like referring to newspapers. Oh, because
0: you're British, right? Meteor. Meteor. Yeah, meteor. <laughs> meteor. Oh, right. That's <laughs> different. Yeah, though media exists in satellites, the thing that you thought I might be saying. Uh-huh. No, meteors, meteorites, those things that fall out of mm-hmm. space. Because it reminded me of a morning where I was very frustrated and my stories weren't working, my scenes weren't working. And suddenly I just had... A memory of one of my friends criticized something happening in a story in one of our workshops as saying this thing that you had happen was totally random. It was like a meteor fell out of the sky and killed your character for no reason. Mm -hmm. And that morning, that quote came into my head, and I just started killing the main character of each of my scenes by a meteor, and suddenly it was way more fun, and it was (laughs) interesting. And I was like, wow, each scene will be like... You know, whatever the hero is doing, ultimately fate or the universe intervenes, mm-hmm. you know, which is similar to the story and that no matter what this black kid is doing, the, the cop intervenes. But that in itself is a is, oh, really good definition of what privilege and what systemic bias creates in that the place my head went is actually also a place that Shakespeare, a lot of writers go to, which is what is the hero's ultimate battle against? Fate the universe, something Mm -hmm. falling out of the sky, something out of their control which exists in the cosmos. And this story creates a counter-narrative to that, which is that it's not that we are fighting against fate or even against ourselves. We are fighting against the stories, the institutions that have been created by Mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. Apollo doesn't get to battle fate. He, He ends up being killed by the systems he's inside over and over again before he can ever start fighting the so-called larger, more universal battles.
1: I highly recommend listening to the Lightspeed episode because um, I'm afraid I forget the name of the reader who who works on the Lightspeed podcast. But his rendition of it is amazing, and I had to kind of rewind and re-listen to him say the line, "Intimacy rendered in thigh meat, again and again." <laughs> it was just
0: perfect. In- intimacy rendered in what? Thigh meat. Oh, thigh meat. Yeah. Oh, it's. It's delicious. <laughs> it's, it's good stuff.
1: Delicious and upsetting. So my pick for this week is Where We Must Be by Laura Vandenberg, which I found in the Non-Essential American Reading in 2008, but was also uh, picked a little while ago by Electric Literature as one of the recommended reading. Literature. Yeah, <laughs> I can't see people, I, but he's given me the look. Don't even have to ask anymore. <laughs> just one more time. <laughs> Literature. <laughs> um... So this is a story about a failed actress who takes a job at a Bigfoot recreation park uh, where she has to dress in a Bigfoot costume and sneak up to scare people who pay for the privilege of being scared by Bigfoot. Apparently, Mm. according to this story, there's a whole swath of people who who enjoy and will pay for this experience. Um, It's
0: based on real life.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Um meanwhile her boyfriend Jimmy you know in a kind of a, a parallel thread of the story is is dying of cancer and the two of them are choosing their own ways to isolate themselves from each other and from the world and that is what keeps me going back to every paragraph and every line of this story the way the different ways that Laura has picked to demonstrate to us that this isolationist damaging kind of <laughs> isolationist is not the right word
0: it's fine I it just i felt like you were channeling u.s um policy at the moment
1: yeah okay so that maybe is more of a political term but i think it's i think that it scales the political <laughs> you know is the personal <laughs> yeah the personal is the political and so what's very beautiful is that laura has chosen the the metaphor of this Bigfoot costume that um, Jean turns out to be the character's, the, the female character's name, although it is only used once in the whole story.
0: Well, yeah, because it's all about subsuming, subsuming her own identity, so she's uh-huh. not one to put her name out there.
1: And so it's all about how when she puts this costume on, when she puts this mask on, she is finally able to, or, or suddenly able to, connect with this kind of raw, deep, emotional, human person that she is, which she cannot do outside of that situation. But when she's in costume, she can roar like a Bigfoot.
0: Yeah, yeah, which speaks to something I loved in the story, uh, which is, I'm going to call it a kind of earnest indirectness. Mm -hmm. Uh, An earnest indirectness, which I would posit like... (laughs) <laughs> it's not gonna
1: come. <laughs> I thought I was gonna sneeze readers, so I made him stop talking, but no. Okay, please continue.
0: Which opposed to like a like a, a, a total flat directness of, of, of Hemingway, say, or a certain mm. kind of realist a- author where they do, as opposed to other literary authors, just flat out state whatever the emotions of are the characters. Um, is more akin to what I associate with a certain brilliant strain of children's literature where like where the wild things are where the the metaphors the masks the monsters that are chosen are there in a way that is scary but not scary and allows allows the author to struggle very directly and earnestly with whatever they're dealing with mm-hmm. oh yeah and sometimes that mode you know that i liken to, to children's literature is likened to the ridiculous way children are described sometimes as innocent. And sometimes, Mm. Mm. like, the innocence partly comes from the idea that it's not really scary, that no one's really going to get hurt, Uh which, of course, is ridiculous. But anyway, um, and that also sometimes gets applied mm, less now, perhaps, to fantasy in general, to its escapism escapism and innocence. And I feel like exactly what you were describing, what this story does With having the two parallel stories of of her and Jimmy, where Jimmy's dying of cancer, of her and Bigfoot, where it's made literal, her tendency to dress in the dreams and mythologies of other people Mm -hmm. as a way to escape whatever's going on in her life is actually exactly like what dreams actually allow you to do, or fantasy in this case allows you to do, which is to look your monster in the eye Mm -hmm. and converse with them. Which in this case is the, you know, is that that horror of, of finding your strength inside of losing yourself into someone else's fantasy. And that's something we can, you know, you and I can probably identify with since it is really all writers do. We just make up other people to have other dreams that we can get <laughs> lost in and, and yeah, roar. True.
1: That thing that, that dreams and fantasies do for us, which is allow us to experience feelings that we have repressed within ourselves or even not specific feelings, just any feeling, the ability to connect to our emotions. That is what the people who are coming to the Bigfoot Recreation Park are doing. To me, they very much symbolize that thing of, well, I want this experience because I want to feel, and I need to feel because society, parenting, culture, whatever, has told me that expressing my feelings, connecting to my feelings is inappropriate and and not something that I should be doing outside of a, yeah, not something that I should be doing. We've talked before about, about fractal mm-hmm. stories and about the, how great ones reflect their themes in, in every detail, in every scene, in every moment. And one of my favorite moments in this in this story is where Jean and Jimmy, they live in houses across the street from each other. And at one moment, they are on the phone to each other, but standing in their front windows so they can see each other. And Jean is lying to Jimmy about why she can't come over. Right? She says she's late for work. She's not late for work. And it so beautifully captured the kind of disguises that she's wearing in her life in every moment yeah it really it really articulated that it really captured the sense that she is cutting herself off at every opportunity and I don't know if she's really aware of even those opportunities of connection when they come like that's mm-hmm. the saddest. Does she even realize it?
0: I love that part of what brackets this story is a question of love um which is often referred to as a as a kind of dream state delusion <laughs> some some would say um that at the beginning jean describes being with jimmy as not love at least not what she thought love would feel like Mm -hmm. and at the end of the story you know after we've gone through as you say these beautiful fractal uh images of of parallel theme in the story which is for example jimmy uh, knows that he's going to die and he could go to the grand canyon or he could just think about how he could go to the Grand Canyon and not be disappointed by whatever the Grand Canyon actually is. And, you know, that kind of image recurs again and again of somebody ultimately holding on to the dream rather than face the reality. And it's a question that the gene considers for herself in terms of loving and being with a person who is dying because she's like, you know what? I mean, it's kind of cool because I'll be the last and only person this person loves before they die. And I will be their life love forever. Um, But immediately right there, this is near the end of the story, that peak of a kind of fantasy of yourself that obliterates someone else. She realizes and she expresses to Jimmy actually um, that if she could allow him to live and love someone else, she would do that. Yeah. And he says, I think that's what love is. Mm. And she's like, maybe that's right. And I was I was like, yeah, yeah, that's in a way, part of the the answer to the questions the story is asking, which is allowing someone to exist outside of the dreams you have of them is, if not the definition of love, one of the definitions of love one should possibly pursue. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about the final scene and how I was initially when I was reading this story uh, and the, you know, when you find out that the partner has cancer and he's very close to death, I thought, oh, you know, okay. So if, if, if fine. The, the story has an ending baked in already because he will die and, and that will, you know, be some conclusion, but no. That's not how she concluded the story because she knew that it's Jean's story and it's about Jean needing to be the person who pulls off her costumes, who doesn't, Who at one point, right, she, she talks about A, having been married before and it didn't work out. B, she gets fired from being, uh, from the Bigfoot job and that she th- talks about maybe going to become a clown, right? Oh my God. Just another costume to put on, another way to to stay away from her own emotions. But instead, what happens is we get a scene of her and Jimmy going for a swim in the lake, because Jimmy gets very excited that this is something that he wants to do. And after all that she's experienced with him and getting fired from her job, she has this moment, or they have this moment, where Jimmy asks her to roar like a Bigfoot. Something which she said that she can't do when she's not in costume before. But that moment when they've gone into the lake and she's washed away all her costumes or, you know, it's very biblical and sort of baptizing as they go into the water and she's able to do it. She's able to connect with her own emotion and deliver that roar. And the paragraph where she describes it, it is like it shakes heaven and earth. I mean, A, it was incredibly satisfying and beautifully written. But B, my respect for the author was like, boom, sky high she went to a much better place than i thought the the story was going and i love it when i love it when a story does that that's like
0: the bare minimum
1: yeah i expect the bare minimum and when you shoot when you when you shoot past it
0: i meant that's the bare minimum i expect is you to shoot past what you've oh, right. set up um
1: yes. yeah, yeah oh yeah, because uh,
0: when we were a clarion uh, holly black said something about how novels and stories work best if you plant a time bomb at the beginning so that there's a clock ticking in somebody's head that is going to take them to the end. And that's exactly it. There was a place where I made a mark on the story. And it's like, oh my God, Jimmy's the time bomb. Jimmy (laughs) is the ticking clock that will at some point go boom um, or not go boom. And that is the thing, right? Like what you're saying. And most of my favorite stories, while there is a time bomb, as Holly described, in my favorite stories, that time bomb never goes off because this is exactly what you said. The time bomb isn't the story. It's just a trick to make you read the story with a sense that it will end, which Mm. for some reason readers need to be reminded of at the beginning because they're afraid it won't
1: end. Otherwise, yeah, it's a too big a commitment. I don't know.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. So I I feel like that's just a a good bit of advice that came to me while I was reading the story that I will try to remember, which is to place a time bomb and make sure it doesn't go off. Yeah. I like it. Um yeah. Thanks for listening readers. This has been Storylogical, that one podcast that talks about stories. We probably did not talk about all the stories that exist in any of the worlds
1: <laughs> and we certainly didn't say everything um, about even these two stories?
0: No, no, I would almost say that's impossible. Yeah, but uh, well, we I would appreciate st- if we it. picked.
1: You know, we just got to stop picking such great stories that we could talk about <laughs> for hours and hours.
0: <laughs> just, um, I think, I think the mark of a great critic is that no matter the story, you could go on endlessly. Okay. I mean, I know some people say concision is the better part of wit, um, but I'm pretty sure all of those people are dead,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so they didn't figure it out. <laughs> um
1: so if you want to share your opinions with us or let us know about some amazing stories that you found you can hit us up on twitter we are at storyological which is story
0: like the word oh like the letter
1: and logical
0: like aristotle uh you can follow emma on twitter she is at eg kosh
1: and you can follow chris on twitter he is at kuvols.
0: If you are on Facebook and you want to join us and like us and send us your reactions, God <laughs> God knows that we don't need any of your words. Just find a little icon that appropriates we do, your general we do feeling. Want, we
1: want words and interactions and human beings.
0: That's true. Uh, you can do all of that at facebook.com slash storyological.
1: And if you have enjoyed this podcast, and we hope you have, please head over to iTunes and leave us a many-starred review. It helps people find us, and we love it when that happens.
0: And if you are eligible to vote in the Hugos, oh, consider yes. nominating us for Best Fan Cast. I believe the deadline uh, is coming up in the middle of March. I It does cost money to be a member. I believe it is $40 to be a voting member. Oh, okay, because so yeah, you
1: can be a member without actually going to Helsinki.
0: You can. Um... But alas, the registration has ended. So if you're not a member, just tuck this away for next year. (laughs) If you are a member... uh, You're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is a time to say many nice things about us. Unless you don't have any nice things to say, and there's a time to be quiet, which is a bad paraphrase of what Joss Whedon said about when Firefly came out. (laughs) Fair enough. For show notes, links to past episodes, gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature as well as now articles occasionally, including one where we've listed all of the Hugo-eligible works that we discussed last year that you could vote for this year, you can always find us at our home on the web.
1: Storyological.com. Thanks for listening.
0: Happy reading. I need to be at the mic. You know what it does? It wears its metaphors proudly and thinly. Like Buffy. Probably. All of my
1: insights could be uh, appended with the phrase, like Buffy.